Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual Summer Writers Conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, broadcasting from atop a hill in Mercer County, here is your host, El Presidente, Emeritus. Thank you, Gertrude, and hola, listeners. Welcome to Episode 15 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I am your host, Eric Fritschews. Our guest on the show this week is storyteller and poet Susanna Granny Sue Holstein. She's performed stories and songs across the nation for groups, festivals, fairs, conferences, libraries, schools, and even occasionally around campfires. West Virginia history, Appalachian traditional tales, ghost stories, and ballads are strong components of her repertoire. Among her published books are Telling Stories with Puppets in Telling Stories to Children, Granny's Ghost Stories, and two collections of poetry, Home Place Poems from the Mountains and Lives Unheralded. She has a CD of her workout called Mountain Story, Mountain Song, and a new CD in the works called West Virginia Ghost Stories and Songs. A founding member and past president of the West Virginia Storytelling Guild, Granny Sue is an active member of the National Storytelling Network and other related guilds and organizations. She's also a member of West Virginia Writers. When not telling stories, she's a librarian with the Kanawha County Public Library. Granny Sue Holstein, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Eric. Well, now, you're a storyteller, which means you're a practitioner of one of the oldest traditions in history. Those of us who write for just the printed page like to think we're all tapped into the grand traditions of society and all, but but really, oral storytelling has literally shaped human society. How did you first become interested in this art? Oh, that's a story in itself, probably. Uh, I'm one of 13 children in my family, and of course, in a family that large, we seldom had a television that worked. I'm talking about the 1950s and 1960s. In my family, we told stories, not necessarily folk tales, but we talked about our day, what happened. We told those remember when family stories. And so that's always been part of my family, and it still is at our family gatherings. It's rare for the, any television set to be on, and actually there's not a television set in my house. After college, I became a librarian, and teachers asked me to tell stories. And I told them, I read stories from books. I don't tell stories. But they insisted, and so I learned a few stories to tell, and it just grew from there. At a library conference, I heard storyteller Andrina Belcher. She did a workshop on storytelling, and I was fascinated. And part of what she did told me, I can do this. So where did you get the nickname Granny Sue? No, that, that's a, a funny story in itself, and actually it, it's um, connected with the Internet. My grandchildren call me that. I was a grandmother when I was 38. Well, in 1996, I signed on to the Internet listserv for storytellers called Storytell. And I was such a newbie that I was afraid I would look like an idiot. So I thought, well, I won't put my real name out here. I'll just say Granny Sue. And so that's what I used to sign on to Storytell. Not knowing, of course, that right there in the from line on every email message was my name, you know, Susanna Holstein. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know, but it stuck. The storyteller started calling me that, and it just stuck. You perform at quite a number of storytelling festivals around the country. When was your first one to attend, and, and when did you first begin to perform at them? Mm. 
The first one I attended was the very first West Virginia Storytelling Festival in 1996. I went and listened and was absolutely enthralled. There were storytellers from all over the state that they had gathered together up at Jackson's Mill. I got to know Bob McWhorter, who um, organized that festival, and he and I stayed in correspondence, and he invited me to be a teller the next year. And so I was on the stage the following year, very raw, and when I think back, it's almost embarrassing. But, you know, we all have to start somewhere. And I understand the West Virginia Storytelling Guild began at that very festival in 96 and continues holding that festival each year. We do. It dropped off the charts last year. We did not have one last year because of the downturn of the economy, but it has happened every year since 1996. And actually, the founder of that festival, Bob McWhorter, is going to be honored this year at the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee, for his role in supporting storytelling. It's called the Oracle Award, and we're just absolutely thrilled that Bob's getting that award. Well, I'd like to go ahead and hear a story of yours. In fact, I've got one queued up called The Headless Woman of Briar Creek, which I understand is one of the stories you're best known for. Yes. And this actually is coming from your first CD, Granny Sue, Mountain Story, Mountain Song. When my husband Larry was a little boy, there was nothing he liked better than spending time at his granny's. He couldn't wait to see her, because you see, his granny was pretty good at three things that were important to little boys. One thing granny was mighty good at was cooking, and every day after school she had something good fixed for him to eat. Some days it might be biscuits and gravy, other days beans and cornbread, other days fried potatoes with ramps in them. He'd come in and sit down and just eat all he wanted. His granny never told him that he had had enough. And when he'd finished eating, then granny would do the second thing she was good at, and that was listening. He'd reach into the pocket of his overalls and take out his can of marbles. He always carried his marbles in a little metal Prince Albert tobacco can, a little flat red can that slid perfectly down into the pocket of his overalls. He'd take all those marbles out and spread them on the table, and he'd tell Granny the story about how he'd won each and every one in the play yard at recess. That's what kids did for recess back in those days. They played marbles. And if you were good, you'd win the other kids' marbles. Larry was mighty good at playing marbles, so he always had new marbles to show his granny. She'd pick them up one by one and hold them up to the light looking through them. She said it reminded her of looking through the stained glass windows in church on Sunday. Now, Granny, she was just a little old person. She was only about four foot ten tall. Every morning when Granny would get up, she'd take that long silver hair of hers, that long silver hair that hung clear down to her knees, she'd roll that hair up into a bun and pin it on top of her head. Then she'd put on her little old poke bonnet and she'd tie that under her chin, put on her apron and pick up her bag of Five Brothers tobacco and her corncob pipe, put those in her pockets, and that's how she spent her day. But at the end of the day, when Larry was there, when they went out onto the porch to sit down and rock... Granny would take that bonnet off, and she'd hang it on a nail there on the porch. She'd take off her apron and hang it up. She'd pull the pins out of that long silver hair and let it all just tumble down. Then she'd pick up her hairbrush, sit down in that rocking chair, and start brushing her hair 100 strokes. And when her hair was brushed, she'd lay that brush down. And that's when she did the third thing she was so good at. She'd tell stories. She told all kinds of stories. But the stories that Larry liked best were the ghost stories. And Granny, 
She knew a lot of ghost stories. But of all the stories she told him, his favorite story was the story of the headless woman of Briar Creek. No one knows who she is, Granny said. They don't know why she come to be here. They don't even know who killed her or why. Some folks said it was a jealous husband. Others said it was her boyfriend. Some people said it was her best friend. They don't know how she come to be here, but she's here every night, just after dark. If you go down the road and you look up there at that old hanging rock, that big rock that juts out in the road, you look up there on top of that rock, you'll see her standing up there on that rock. And she's always wearing the same thing. Long brown dress with a row of big shiny black buttons and little pointy-toed black boots with little black buttons on them. She holds her head under her arm. Now, if you're going slow enough and you stop and watch, you'll see her start falling. And then you better get on out of there. Because if you stay long enough to see her hit the ground, huh, you be just as dead as she is. Well, Granny tell him that story, and it'd be about that time the sun be going down behind the ridge and darkness start falling. And Larry'd figure he'd better be getting on home because, well, he sure didn't want to see that headless woman. So he'd start on down the road and turning around, waving to his Granny as far as he could see her. Bye, Granny. Bye. Bye. He'd get down the road and around the curve where he couldn't see her cabin anymore. He'd take off running so fast that by the time he got to that hanging rock, he wouldn't be nothing but a blur of blue jeans and bare feet getting by there. And he sure didn't want to see that old headless woman. And that's what he did until the year he turned 12 years old. And that year he got to thinking about that story his granny had been telling him. Was it true? Or was it something she was making up? Was she telling him that story just to make him go home early? To get home before dark? Or was she maybe getting tired of his company and just figured telling him that story would make him leave? Was there really any such thing as a headless woman? Baby stuff, Larry thought. She's making up that baby stuff and I've been believing it and I'm not going to run by that rock anymore. Next time I go by there, I'm going to walk. I'm going to see if I can see that headless woman. Next time he went to Granny's house, they did the same things they always did. She had food fixed for him to eat. Oh, it was biscuits and gravy this time, his favorite. And they did the chores, and they went out there and sat out on the porch, and she told him stories. And the last story she told him was the headless woman of Briar Creek. When she finished that story, Larry got up and started on down the road, turned around and waving, Bye, Granny. Bye. Bye. See you tomorrow. Bye. When he got to the curve in the road where he couldn't see her cabin anymore, he didn't take off running this time. He pulled his slingshot out of his back pocket, picked up pebbles, and shot them at trees. He picked up rocks and skipped them on the creek. By the time he got to the hanging rock, it was completely dark. And he looked up on that rock, and there she was exactly as his granny had said she would be. She was standing up on that rock wearing that long brown dress with that row of big shiny black buttons down the front and little pointy toe boots. And she was holding her head under her arm. And as he stared at her, she started to fall. Well, he took off running so fast he looked like he'd been shot out of his own slingshot. But the headless woman was chasing him. He could hear her right behind him. He could hear her old dry bones just a clacking together, clackety-clack, clackety-clack. And the faster he ran, oh, the faster she came behind him, clackety-clackety-clackety-clackety. He ran as fast as he could all the way up to his house and pounded on the door. Mama, 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 let me in, let me in, let me in. His mother jerked the door open and he fell flat on the floor. 
She stared down at him and said, Larry Holstein, what in the God's name got into you, child? You look like you've seen a ghost. Larry jumped up and slammed that door and stood spread-eagled up against it. Shh, Mama, don't say anything. She's out there on the porch. Don't let her in. Don't let who in, son? The headless woman, Mama. She's out on the porch. The headless woman? She's out on our front porch? You invited her over? No, Mama, no. She chased me down the road, Mama, and she's out there on the porch. Ooh, she chased you down the road. The headless woman chased you down the road? And she's out there on our porch. Yes, Mama, yes, she is out on our porch. Now, shh, don't open the door. How do you know she chased you? Did you see her? Oh, Mama, I could hear her. I could hear her old dry bones. They were just a clickety-clacking together. And the faster I ran, the faster she came behind me. And she's out there on the porch. Well, that's an amazement to me, son. I don't understand. I don't see how you could have heard her dry bones clacking together over the rattling of those marbles and that can in your pocket. Well, to this day, Larry will tell you that he saw that headless woman standing on that rock down on Briar Creek. And whether he truly saw her, I don't know. We went down there to see the rock one day, and they straightened out the road, and the rock wasn't there anymore. And Granny's cabin, it's rotted back down into the earth, too, and there's no sign of it left. But that headless woman, I expect she's still wandering the hills down there around Briar Creek, and she's still scaring those little boys who have a whole lot more imagination than they have courage. There are so many great elements to that story that speak to, to Appalachian culture. And I wondered when I first heard this if it was based on actual events in your husband's childhood or if some of it was even made up from whole cloth. That is actually a story from his childhood. The, the, the thing about stories like that, particularly personal and family history stories, they don't come all at once. My husband told me one day, we were in the car, I think, and he said, you know, my granny used to scare the wits out of me. She used to tell me this story about a headless woman. Well, that was the beginning. And he told me, you know, just the, the bare bones of that story about how the woman was on the rock and how it scared him to death and he thought he saw her and it was actually the marbles rattling in his pocket, not her chasing him down the road. That was the beginning. And it, he told me that in, in less than a minute. But... As we talked about it, and I asked him questions about his granny and about his childhood, more and more pieces began to come and become part of that story. And when I first told it, I was visiting local schools, and I told that story to them, and it was no more than five minutes long. I, I don't even think it was. But as he remembered more things, I added those things into that story. And the more memories he had, the more that enriched the telling. So now... When I tell that story in a performance, it can be as long as 20 minutes because I often include a ballad with it about coal mining. I include talking about um, some coal mining artifacts that I often take with me, like you know, a miner's lunch bucket, um, a miner's helmet, carbide lamps, things like that. So it has become a much longer and deeper piece that I actually do with what I'm performing. The other thing about you know storytelling that people may not know is well, I tell people I never tell a story the same way once. Because <laughs> with each telling, it changes a little bit with each audience. For example, some audiences don't know what the head of the hollow is, and so I have to define those terms. You know, it changes with each telling, 
based on who's listening. And that, to me, that's the joy and the beauty of storytelling, is that story is tailored on the spot to who's listening. It's not memorized. I know the story, and I know the gist of the story. I know the outline, if you will, of the, the bones of the story. But for each audience, that story is edited a little bit. For younger audience, there are other parts you know, that may or may not be told. And for older audiences, other things are added. And to me, that, that's the, the difference between telling a story and writing a story. So really, there's a lot of improvisation that factors into what you do. There is. Because I'm watching that audience. I'm reading them all the time. It's different from theater. Because in theater, there's like that other wall that's between you and the audience where you pretend the audience isn't out there and they pretend that you don't know they're out there. Where with storytelling, I'm reading their eyes. I'm watching their eyes for comprehension. I'm watching their eyes for boredom. (laughs) If they're starting to talk to each other or somebody's falling asleep, I'm watching for that. And I'm mentally adjusting the story as I go to make sure that everybody in that audience is included and following along and understands what I'm talking about. Now, are these skills you developed strictly from experience, or have you had more academic-style training, or both? I've gone to a lot of storytelling conferences over the years um, because, you know, in the beginning, I really felt isolated out here. I didn't have any peers close by that I could train with, practice stories with. And so my online list of storytelling friends, was the, the, that was the people I trained with and learned from. So the skills that I have came from the storyteller listserv, being on that Internet listserv. I've been on it since 1996. I'm still a member. Um, and from attending storytelling conferences. Because when you interact with other storytellers, you learn so much. It's, um, it's not something that you ever know at all, and now you don't have to learn anymore. Every time I, I am around other storytellers. I always learn something new. Well, we're going to have links to the West Virginia Storytelling Guild on our site as well as to the Storyteller Listserv. And we'll also have links to your blog and the remaining dates for your speaking schedule this year so people can come out and see you for themselves. Oh, excellent. And I do hope they come up and introduce themselves. That There's nothing I like better than meeting people when I'm out storytelling and just making new friends out there. That's the best part uh, of storytelling and the best part of writing my blog is meeting those who read. Susanna, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast this week. Well, thank you, Eric. It's been a real pleasure. Granny Sue Holstein can be found online in a variety of places, but primarily at her excellent blog, Granny Sue's News and Reviews. She also has a regular column for Central West Virginia's Tulane Living Magazine, an online version of which you can find at their website. We have those links as well as a host of other Granny Sue and storytelling-related links at our website, wvwriters.org slash podcast.html. As with most of the guests I've spoken to, my conversation with Granny Sue had nearly a whole other podcast worth of material that I had to cut for time consideration. Fortunately, I've been saving these outtakes with a mind to eventually do something with them, and I finally figured out what that is. So join us back here next Friday, September 4th, for the first of our new podcast bonus track episodes. Then on September the 11th, we'll have a special podcast paying tribute to writer Shirley Young Campbell, who passed away on August the 10th. Mrs. Campbell was essentially the mother of West Virginia writers as an organization. We'll talk with people who knew her and detail her many contributions to the literary world of our state. Our show's voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker. This podcast has been produced by Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded atop a hill in Mercer County.